Father, we come before you this morning. Again, our hearts are uh, grateful for the privilege that we have to gather like this, to gather in church uh, publicly for a government who allows us to do this. And we're thankful that we have your written word been given to us to instruct us, to show us who you are, to show us your plan of salvation and your love for us. And I pray this morning as your word is preached that the message that you have for us, um, that we would be open to accept it, to believe it, to understand it. Um, give John special wisdom and power as he presents your word and the message that he has prepared. Give him a clear mind, clear voice, that um, the truth of your word would be revealed and be proclaimed. We thank you for your presence here with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning and welcome to everyone. We have a few visitors here this morning. We are glad that you're here to feel, fill some of the empty spots that we have for some of our regular members. Um, many of us enjoyed the wedding yesterday. I know for myself it's always exciting to see another young couple begin their life together, although I, in some ways I don't envy them. I'm glad I am where I am now. <laughs> um, I also want to thank um, those, Chad and Josh, and I don't think Jim's here this morning, for what they shared, uh, was it only last weekend? Well, it seems like a long time ago. Um, really enjoyed the practical teaching that you had, and now you all have uh, tools to critique us as we speak up here. Anyway, um, this morning is not about marriage. I wasn't sure, and I kind of felt led to share what I have here. Um, I do want to thank whoever picked the last song here, um, very appropriate, whether you realize it or not. I do appreciate that song, The Battle is Already Won, and I want you all to keep that in mind as we go through what I have to share here this morning. As you might have guessed from the title, um, I would like to speak directly about Satan and the methods that he uses against us. When we think of a lion... Um, a lion roars for many reasons. Uh, it roars to, for territorial reasons, for things like that, but also to paralyze its prey with fear. And I'm told that a lion does not roar up into the air, but down against the ground. And I guess the reason is that makes the roar sound like it's coming from everywhere um, at once. It doesn't just come from one direction. And so whatever it's after has no idea which way to run, and so it just freezes in place and becomes lunch. So if you would, uh, turn with me to Job, the first chapter. I'm going to read the entire first chapter here. And into chapter 2. There's three main characters in this passage, and I want you to, to listen for them as we get to them. And they are God, Satan, and Job. There are some secondary characters as well, but that's not my focus. And those three, their roles are tightly interwoven here in this passage, but I want to focus primarily on Satan's part of the story this morning. This is a very interesting passage. I've often wondered how it came to be written. It gives us an inside glimpse into the heavenly realm. 
and Bible scholars aren't really sure who wrote the book. Some believe Job himself, and if so, then obviously some of these behind-the-scenes revelations must have come to Job at a later point. We don't really know that, but let's remember that as we read here. So Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she-donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them, and would rise up early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons had sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From when, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands. His possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And there was a day when the sons and daughters, when his, speaking of Job, sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their, in their oldest brother's house. A messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, the donkeys were feeding beside them, when the Sabians raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came also and said, The fire of the Lord fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and, t and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, took them away. Yes, killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house, for suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless, upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. 
The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a potsherd with which he scraped himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. And his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said, You speak as a foolish woman speaks. Shall we not? Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. So a lot of things we could read into this, um, in the life of Job, in Job's testimony, in his integrity, in his, probably the worst day of his life, he would be very quick to say here. And we will some other time, but I want to leave that for a little bit, and like I said, focus instead on the role of Satan here. So if we look at this, we see a couple things. Uh, first point, Satan is real, just as God and the angels are real. He is not just a bad feeling or an influence, but he is a real being. He is not equal to God, but he is just as real as God is. Sometimes we portray Satan as darkness and Jesus as light, or Satan as evil and Jesus as good, and those comparisons are correct. We also say sometimes that darkness is simply the absence of light, which is true, or that evil is simply the absence of good, which is also true. But Satan is not simply the absence of God. There is a difference there. Um, you take the light away, you have darkness. You take God away, you don't just end up with Satan. Yes, you do, but Satan is not just the absence of God. He is a real being. He is alive and he is active. So I think it's very important for us to remember that he is there, he is real. The Bible is not real clear when Satan began or when he fell. Uh, most believe he was created with God along with the rest of the angels. Colossians 1 verse 16 says, For by him, by God, were all things created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, where they are thrones, dominions, principalities, which are areas ruled by a supernatural power, or powers. These things were created through him and for him. So this would certainly seem to include Satan. It would also imply he might have been created during the six days of creation, at the end of which God says everything was very good, and then God rested on the seventh day. And to me, it would seem unlikely that God would call Satan, as we know him today in his fallen state, very good. Or that he rested while something as monumental as Satan's fall was occurring. So it would seem possible, again, don't know this, that Satan fell sometime between the seventh day of creation and when he then later tempted Eve. Don't know. Also possible that he was created earlier and fell sometime before this. Uh, Job 38 mentions the angels shouting for joy as God lays the cornerstones and foundations of the earth. Um, we know Satan existed as an angel before he fell, and so he may have existed before the time of creation. Again, don't feel it's super important that we try to figure this out, and certainly not the point of today's sermon, but it is kind of an interesting thing to, to look at, to think about um, when Satan, when all that time frame happened there, and I'm sure someday we will know that. In verse 6, it mentions the sons of God, and it's an interesting term there. There is another place in the Bible that also talks about the sons of God um, with plural, with an S. And as we know, Jesus is God's only son, 
And because the S here is not capitalized, we assume sons here is probably referring to the angels. Um, in some places, they are referred to as the sons of God as well. So that's probably who it's referring to here, the angels. And interesting enough, Satan came as well. And we know, obviously, by this time, um, he was, well, we see from his actions, um, he was cast down. We know that. And yet he comes, he shows up at this um, meeting that God has. And so number two, we see that Satan is accountable to God. Um, in verse 6 and 7, and again in chapters, uh, chapter 2, he presents himself to God and he answers God's questions, which obviously means that, number three, God is more powerful. Uh, many verses would support this, but obviously um, one is not accountable to someone of equal or lesser power. Satan answers to God, never the other way around. We never see God um, answering to Satan. Satan always still is forced to submit to God. Satan is referred to in Ephesians 2, verse 2, as the prince of the power of the air. And I could be mistaken. I did try to do some searching. But I don't think Satan is ever referred to as a king in the Bible. Am I, am I right on that? Is Satan ever referred to as a king in the Bible? No one's agreeing with me, so we're going to go with that. Um, I believe the title king is reserved, other than earthly kings, um, only for God or for Jesus. And since, and trying to follow this here, since only a king can have a kingdom, I suggest we use some caution in referring to God's kingdom or Satan's kingdom. I think heavenly kingdom and earthly kingdom is more accurate. Um, we know God allows man to choose whom he will serve. And the earthly kingdom, as we call it, is comprised of those who have rejected God and therefore put themselves under the influence of Satan, but God is still in control of their lives. Although he does remove his hedge of protection from around that, more on that later. And so as we see in the story of Job, while Satan is given a certain degree of freedom to act in the earthly kingdom, he can still do nothing without God's permission. And I think it's important to remember that he is a prince, not a king. And that, important, that difference is, I believe, very significant. A prince is still always going to answer to a king. Number four, Satan spends his time going to and fro and up and down through the earth. He's always busy. He's always stalking. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And we talked about lions a bit. Um, a lion stalks his prey, usually the young, the weak, or the sickly ones in the group. Like I said, he roars to paralyze them with fear. And to devour, as it says here, gives the idea of tearing up or destroying his prey. I don't believe Satan chooses people as we choose softball teams because he wants you on his side. I also don't believe he keeps track of how many he has destroyed, only of how many more he has to go. His purpose is not to get you for himself, not to get you on his team, but only to take you from God. We see that here in, in the story of Job. Satan's goal was to get Job to curse God. Now, why is that important? Let's never have even the slightest idea that Satan will take care of us if we serve him. That is never the case. Satan never gives more 
than he will expect in return. A person's only attraction to Satan is in stealing that person from God's kingdom or using that person as a means against God's kingdom. And that's why some very sinful people live in what seems to be peace, because Satan already has them under his control. He is no longer bothering them. He has them where he wants them, and he is using them. Number five, Satan does not know our thoughts, nor is he able to see the future. And as a created being, he is controlled by time, meaning he is limited to being in one place at one time. Therefore, unlike God, he needs to go to and fro, as it says here on the earth. He cannot be in two places at once. Although like the lion would like to do, um, his roar would like to make us think that he is all around us, that we have nowhere to go. That is not true. He does obviously have many fallen helpers who he uses as well. So his influence is not limited to only one time, one place, but he himself is bound by time as we know that God is not. You know, God sees the end from the beginning. All of time, as we say, is laid out in front of God. Um, God lives in the eternal present. And some of you know I like to, I kind of like this idea. There is no past, there is no future. When God says, I am, we know that that is present tense. God simply lives in the eternal present by being I am. Now I was or I will be, I am. That's what eternity will be, and God is already, in a sense, living in eternity because time does not exist for him. In eternity, there will be no past, no present, only now. I'm sorry, no future, only present, only now. So the boundaries of time restrict Satan while allowing God, who only exists in an eternal state, to be omnipresent, to be everywhere at once. Um, Satan cannot do that. Anyway, we see that Satan does not know the future from his conversation here with God in uh, verses 8 through 11. Satan thought that Job only blessed God because God blessed him. And this is very important when we think about resisting Satan when he tempts us. Even though Satan cannot read our thoughts, he's obviously had uh, thousands of years and millions of people. And he's very skilled at being able to read people's reactions to situations, to temptations. And so he can often tell if he's getting through to us by our responses. But it also means that we can pray to God silently in our hearts and our minds, but Satan needs to be rebuked in an audible voice. I think it's something we sometimes kind of forget that if it, it, it can be a whisper. It doesn't have to be yelling or anything, but Satan cannot hear our thoughts. And so if we are going to rebuke him say, Satan, no more of that. It needs to be in an audible voice so he is able to hear that. And Satan, number six, Satan can do nothing without God's permission, as we saw earlier. Interesting enough, um, verse 12, God gives Satan permission to take all that Job had, but not to touch Job himself. When that didn't work, he came back to God, and God gave him further permission to do what he wanted to Job physically, but to still spare his life. We see that number seven, God has a hedge of protection around his people, their families, and their possessions. Satan can only cross that hedge with God's permission. And as we see here in this story, sometimes God does allow 
Satan to cross that hedge, not just in temptations, but in actually harming them. Um, and this is different than if we weaken that hedge by giving in to Satan's temptations, allowing him to make a gap in that hedge. But God only allows Satan to breach that hedge when he knows that the end result will glorify him. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted, above that you are able, but, that, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. God will not allow Satan to tempt us to the point that we are unable to resist. So that is not a good excuse. Um, I could not resist. We are clearly told that God will not allow that to happen. Number eight, being perfect won't keep you from being tempted. And I'm sorry, those of you that thought that would. Um, it doesn't. In verse one here, it says Job was perfect and upright, one who feared God and shunned or avoided evil. Now, it doesn't get much better than that, unless, of course, this is simply Job just writing about himself here. Um, but I think we know and we see in Job's life that he was probably um, as close to perfect in a lot of ways. He was not entirely, if we all read on through, he did have some questions about God. Um, but about as close to perfect as, as, as what a man can ex be expected to be in, in a human state here. We also see that Job's servants, Job's first set of children, um, died as a part of all this. I don't completely understand. Um, they were not perfect either, obviously, but they were innocent. They were innocent victims of Satan's scheme here to get at Job, and God still allowed their deaths. So if we were to look at them and try and figure out why they were allowed to be killed, why God allowed that, um, nothing that they did, nothing that they could really change. Um, and yet God allowed that to happen simply, I don't know, as a, re as, a, as a means of teaching Satan a lesson, if that's possible, I'm not sure. Um, but they were innocent victims. And so really I think what I'm saying here is no one is exempt. No one is safe, if you please, um, from, okay, uh, when I say safe, Satan will destroy anyone he can get, a, he can get his hands on. It doesn't matter who, he doesn't care. Um, we are safe through God's protection, but yeah. So while b number nine, while being perfect won't save us, it is very important to understand that temptations don't necessarily come as a result of doing wrong. Like I just said here, uh, Job was perfect. Uh, his, his children, as far as we know, um, were godly people. They did a lot of partying, but there was anything wrong with that. Um, but Job interceded for them, and he sacrificed for them. And as far as we know, Job's family was a very upright family. And God simply allowed this to happen to Job to prove to Satan that Job's love for God was not dependent on only receiving blessings. So God has a hedge of protection around us. Uh, this is mentioned numerous times by Satan. Um, also in Psalm 91, uh, 9 through 12, because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the most high, thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee, Neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling, for he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. 
We might remember this is a passage that Satan misquoted when he was tempting Jesus. Um, during Jesus' 40 days, Satan said, hey, you know, God won't let anything bad happen to you. You can jump down, you can do whatever, and God will protect you. This is where he got that. We know that while that is true, um, yeah, that was twisted for Satan's, for Satan's purpose there. Most of us have been raised in a Christian home. Uh, we're ourselves a Christian, uh, married to a Christian spouse, even part of a Christian church. And we know that God protects those who choose him, but his protection also extends to a certain degree to include those who associate with his people. It's interesting here to see that. We, we know if we were to turn to Acts 27, when the, the ship was sinking and Paul was, was there, and Paul said, there'll be no loss of life if you stay with me. Now, nothing he could do, but I think he recognized the extension of God's protection to those close by. And he said, stay with me and God will protect us. So most of us fall into the, one of the above categories. Most of us have had the benefit of living inside God's protection, hedge of protection, uh, most, if not all of our lives. And as a result, we have been largely spared from the full force of Satan's attacks. The downside is sometimes we don't recognize Satan when he does attack because we've never really realized the full extent of what he is capable of. A little like being inside a building during a hard rainstorm. Um, we know it's raining. We can see it through the windows. We can kind of hear it. But if we don't step out the door, we pretty much stay dry. And those that are on the outside receive, unfortunately, the full force of that rainstorm. And if one of those from the outside comes in, they bring the rain with them. They bring the effects of Satan's um, destruction on their life with them. They're figuratively dripping wet, uh, make a mess, mud and puddles. They're cold, smelly, sick. They don't instantly become warm and dry just because those of us that are inside might be. Um, it takes time, it takes care, it takes patience. It takes allowing our floor to become messy. It takes accepting them as they are while still realizing the potential that God has for them. Many of us have been inside our whole lives. We don't even look out the windows sometimes because it's not pretty out there. I'm not suggesting we go outside. Um, that's dangerous. We need to be able to reach out to help someone in. Be ready and willing to gladly accept and help someone who is trying to escape Satan's grip. We'll look a little bit here at the different methods that Satan uses, especially some that he tries to use on those of us, if I may say, that are inside the hedge. Um, he knows an obvious attack won't work for a few reasons. Number one, the hedge will not allow a direct attack. God's protection is there. And number two, we would recognize him. We'd resist if he launched a direct attack. So his methods are often more subtle to those of us who are protected. Some are very simple, obviously not a complete list here, but number one, uh, jealousy. I think we know what jealousy is. Um, prime example here in Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Um, then Mar uh, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of, his, of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. So they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. So they were simply jealous of Moses' position. And interesting enough, they expressed their jealousy of his position by criticizing his wife. 
had nothing to do with his wife whatsoever. They were simply jealous of what Moses was um, and how God was using him. And so they expressed that by reaching out to something close to Moses and trying to criticize that. And interesting, that's how jealousy often works. God's response was swift. It was harsh. Uh, Miriam became leprous. leprous. It was only through Moses interceding that God spared them. Satan loves to bring division to the church to set people at odds with each other. Um, here were three siblings, um, all three called by God, all three given uh, respective but important roles in leading the children of Israel. And they all had their part to play, and yet two of them became jealous uh, at the other. It doesn't really matter what the disagreement is. If we're busy fighting each other, we don't have the time or energy to fight with Satan. If Satan can get us to see each other as the enemy, then we lose our focus on who the real enemy is. We know this little situation here obviously took some time to work through and to resolve. And during that time, the leadership of the nation was put on hold while the three leaders um, got their got their feelings in order again. Jealousy comes so many different ways. The word jealousy or covet doesn't sound quite as bad as the word lust, but they all mean the same thing, wanting something that is not yours. Along with that comes discontentment, not being satisfied with what God has blessed us with, where he's placed us, how he's using us, or not trusting him to provide for us. Number two, discouragement or feeling overwhelmed. I think all of us, as we go through here, can probably relate more or less to some of these points and others. Uh, numbers, I'm sorry, 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 15 through 17. When the servant of the man of God, uh, speaking of, I think it's Elisha here, arose early and went out, there was an army. So Elisha's servant woke up early, went out, and saw an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And the servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountains was full of horses and chariots of fire. <coughs> All around. So the servant was simply human, and he was having, um, as we do, a bad day. And he said, they're all around us. They're, they have me surrounded. You know, where, where can we go? And um, Elisha simply prayed and said that, God, please open your eyes. And we know uh, this is where the saying comes from, there are more with us than there are against us. So when you're feeling overwhelmed, outnumbered, <coughs> ask God to open your eyes his protection and the provision that he has surrounding you <coughs> sorry number three complacency or lukewarmness we turn to revelation chapter three we know the passage here god speaking to one of the churches revelation three verse 14 so the angel of the church of laodicea write these things saith the amen the faithful the true witness the beginning of the creation of god 
I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So here this church thought that they kind of had it together. Um, rich, I don't know what they thought. Uh, wealthy, need of nothing. They pretty much had their life um, as they wanted it. And God says, no, um, you don't. You're lukewarm. And now we know what, what lukewarm means. It means there's a little bit of cold mixed in with the hot. Um, doesn't take much. And I had to think of an example. Uh, when we do countertops and we have a piece that's too big uh, or a section that's too big for one piece, we have to put two of them together. And we have this special glue that stinks like crazy, um, probably eats brain cells to no end. But it starts off mostly white and we add a little bit of coloring to try and make it match whatever the countertop is. And we don't just squirt a bunch of black in it because all of a sudden it's just totally black. But we put black off the side, we take a little stick and we just touch the black and put that in. And literally a pinhead of black will turn that white into a gray. And a second pinhead is dark gray. And I think that's what he's saying here. We think, well, lukewarm is an equal mixture of hot and cold. No, lukewarm is only a little bit of black that turns the white to gray. So and obviously it doesn't take long before you can get too much black. You got to start over because you can't add enough white coloring to overcome that black. You simply cannot. Um, so Satan knows he can't necessarily get all of us. In fact, he doesn't need all of us if just a little bit can ruin our effectiveness. The next one, uh, strongholds. We know what a stronghold is uh, back um, in earlier times when they had castles, they had uh, more hand-to-hand -hand, uh, combat warfare. A stronghold is a fortified base camp from which to launch attacks or hold out against an attack. Um, so that if, a, if an army could establish a stronghold, that was a place where they felt relatively safe. They could come back to, even if it was out slightly in enemy territory, and from there they could launch other attacks, but that was a place um, of relative safety for them. So Satan loves to establish strongholds in our lives. These can be any number of things. It can be pride, greed, lust, envy, uh, bitterness, cheating, lying, worry, feeling inferior, shame, addition, addictions, depressions, any of these, the list goes on and on. Pretty much whatever Satan can use in our life to gain a foothold. And once he has established that stronghold, it's much easier then for him to reach out from there to other areas in our lives. And rarely are victories won all at once. Um, if you ever study wars, there's, there's victories and there's defeats. And usually it's, you know, small steps. You gain a step here, you lose a step here. Step by step, uh, little by little, a victory is won. And the same way works in reverse. When we claim God's power against Satan, uh, it can be a very slow process, but little by little, we can also regain that victory. We can take those strongholds back that Satan has won in our lives. Uh, Second Corinthians. Um, chapter 10, verses 3 and three to 5. 
For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, but pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the power of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of God and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So there again, he gives a, he gives the example of thoughts here. I think we all know that thoughts um, probably is the easiest way for Satan to gain strongholds um, in our lives, whether, whatever, yeah, anyway, there's so many different things that thoughts can be about, um, whether it's, whether it's uh, depression, disobedience, lust, all of that. Um, probably the easiest way for Satan to get a stronghold is through our thoughts. And let's remember that to always fill the gaps when Satan leaves with godly things. We read about, I won't turn to that, um, the, the, was it the man who had the demons cast out? And he did not refill his life with something good. And they came back worse than they were to begin with. So the gaps will not stay empty. Either we fill them with good or else Satan returns and fills them tighter than they were before. Number, uh, number five, pride. Uh, favorite one, pride is defined as having a deep satisfaction or pleasure from one's own achievement. Now that's, that's great. Um, we're supposed to have high self-esteem. We're supposed mm -hmm. to think well of ourselves that it's true. God did create us in his image and he gave us abilities that we are to appreciate. But that is not pride. Pride takes the honor and glory away from God and focuses it on ourselves. It says, look what I have done, not what God has done. And Paul is a prime example of this in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. Um, we know Paul's journey. Um, we know how God used him, how God changed him. We also know how reluctant Paul was to even speak of his previous life sometimes. But here he, he just uh, gives a, a brief picture of what he was. Um, Philippians 3, verse 4, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he might have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me? Now, these don't necessarily mean much to us, but in those days, that was quite a pedigree. Um, you know, this was Paul, and then he had MD, and I don't know what all the little titles were behind his name. And he's saying, you know, I, I really was somebody. Um, I, had it, I had it all. I had risen to the top as far as man was concerned. What things were gained to me, these I counted lost for Christ. Yea, indeed, I count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. And to be found in him, I have my own, my own righteousness, but that which is, which is from the law, that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. So Paul went through all that he had, and he said, I, I will count all this as rubbish um, in order to gain the knowledge of Christ, the excellency to be counted um, with Christ here. Satan loves to get leaders to trip, to stumble. 
if you are in a position of leadership, whether it's a husband, a father, a mother, a school teacher, employer, pastor, be warned, Satan has a target on your back. The more effective you are as a leader, the bigger the target. I don't know if that's any consolation or not, but if you're having a bad day um, and you feel it, maybe that's confirmation that you actually are doing a good job. Um, we should expect to be attacked, but Satan is very good at attacking in unexpected ways. Really unhandy ways sometimes. Uh, number six, distracted worship. This may seem like a rather minor one if we don't truly understand the importance of worship. God both invites and commands our worship. Worship acknowledge, acknowledges and praises God for who he is and what he has done and what he will do. Worship pledges our allegiance to God. It's saying we are his. Some of you know um, that back in Pennsylvania, my wife and I helped out with Bible school for the inner city children in Lancaster City there. Each year was a different theme, and the one year was simply the theme of worship. And initially I thought, well, that's, you know, I mean, there was, I forget what some of the other themes were, but the theme of worship seemed like a lesser theme than some. But it became very obvious when these children focused on worshiping God that they were shifting their allegiance from Satan to Jesus. And the sound of 600 plus uh, city kids singing praises to God was pretty amazing. And then the amount of um, pushback, the amount of resistance from Satan that week was also pretty amazing. It made me realize how much Satan hates when we worship God. So yeah, um, worship is very important. You know, Satan can distract that worship or break us from that. Um, he can break our connection to God. I know it's very easy. Um, you're sitting in church and you're worried, what are you going to do next week? Or what are you going to make for lunch? Or is lunch burning? Um, I know that's, I'm human. I sit there as well. Um, I've been guilty of planning my next week while I sit there listening to someone else preach. So none of us are, none of us are uh, exempt from that. But I do encourage I do encourage you to think of that. Satan loves to just simply distract us. If we're having our morning devotion, we read through the Bible and we realize I have no idea what I just read because um, I was already thinking of something else. That is one of Satan's um, one of Satan's tricks. Satan is also called a deceiver. Obviously, being deceived is simply believing something that is that is false is true. Um, interesting enough, deceived people don't know they're deceived. Um, that's kind of the whole point of being deceived is you don't know that you are. Satan deceives in different ways. One is by mixing truth and lies, by misquoting or misapplying truth. So much of what we hear today um, is a mixture of truth with a little bit of untruth uh, mixed in. I mentioned earlier how Satan misquoted God's promise of protection when he was tempting Jesus. And I want to look just real quickly at how Satan deceived Eve. I'm not going to read the entire passage because we're kind of getting on in time. But in Genesis chapter 3, uh, 13 verses, first 13 verses there, we know that the account of Satan um, tempting Eve 
And I just want to look at the, the, the quick progression that he took Eve through when he did that. Um, verse 1, Satan says, Yea, hath God said. Now we know that it's referred to as the Lord God. And so Satan already just referred to him as God, uh, not Lord God. He's already diminishing Satan's authority, or I'm sorry, God's authority. He, then he raises doubt. He makes us question what God said. Did God really say that? Then he discredits God. He discredits his word. He allows what God had says to be subject to our judgment, to our interpretation. He brings distrust. All temptation begins by questioning or doubting God in one way or another, whether consciously or subconsciously. Satan also focuses on the negative. He knew very well that God said they could eat, every, eat from every tree except that one, and he ignores all the trees that God said were okay to eat from, and instead focuses on the one tree that God said to stay away from. So he portrays God here as hiding something from them, um, as being selfish, as being stingy, as having needless restrictions, keeping them from reaching their full potential. This is all what Satan was telling Eve. Satan is all about freedom, enjoyment, satisfaction, no judgment, no consequences. God is about bondage, keeping things back from me. And at this point, Satan, or I'm sorry, Eve should have stopped him and said, no, that is not true. Um, she should have stopped the undermining of God's character. She should have commanded Satan at that point to leave. And I believe this is where the actual fall occurred before the act itself, when Eve chose to believe Satan and believe what he was saying, or at least accept it, um, instead, of, instead of standing on what she knew was true, was, was what God was. When she stopped believing in the goodness and, and wisdom of God, and instead started distrusting his word. When she believed Satan's lie that God doesn't love her and does not want the best for her, that is when the fall occurred. And the, the, the actual act was then just simply um, the next step. So we see how Satan's lie uh, leads her down the road of deception, one step at a time, till she no longer trusts God or believes what he had said. Then we see the results. Uh, sin, sin brings shame, then fear. We know God comes looking for them, asking, where are you? And they were trying to hide. Now, we know that you can't hide from God, but they were trying. Uh, God knew where they were. He didn't have to ask where they were. God was giving them a chance to repent. It's like asking your children, um, you know, what happened here? When you see something broken, you know what happened. But you're, ready at, you're asking them, to, giving them a chance to acknowledge what um, happened, to repent. God knew what had happened. He was giving them a chance to tell the truth. And their response instead was quite lame. Um, Adam said, well, we're hiding because we're naked. Now, if you've got to think about it, not a week before, well, maybe a week before, a couple weeks before, God had just got done making every single part of Adam. And so he, there was nothing to hide from God. And yet, Adam says that. What he's expressing here instead is not shame at his physical um, condition, but shame and fear from having sinned, from having um, rejected God. And so he, he feels exposed because he has rejected God. So God gives him a, a second chance to confess. And you know what the story? Um, Adam says, well, the, the lady, the, the woman you gave me uh, tempted me. Eve says, well, the serpent tempted me. And they go back and forth, even so far as Adam almost trying to blame God. He says, well, the woman you gave me, uh, she caused me to sin. 
So here we see the downward spiral of sin, even to the point of blaming God for our sin. That's quite astounding if you think about it. Then God proceeds to pass out punishments all around to the serpent, to the woman, to the man. He even cursed the ground that would bring forth thorns and thistles. And Adam has an interesting response to all this. He names his wife Eve, which means mother of all living. So up to this point, she had been simply referred to as the woman. And Adam gave her a name. Now, why did he do this? She was not the mother of anything yet. But did your parents ever notice if you're reprimanding your children for something they did wrong, they're listening for one thing, and that is, what is my punishment going to be? <laughs> they're, they're waiting to hear that. And I think Adam and Eve knew very well, God had said, in the day you eat of the tree, you will surely die. I think they were expecting instant death, and they were waiting to hear that. And as God continued speaking, Adam was listening, and through all the punishments, Adam heard, still heard the promise of a future here. God refers to the woman's seed, which had not yet been born. He refers to working the ground all the days of Adam's life. And I think Adam realized when he named Eve that even though their lives were changed from this point on, because of the consequences of sin, they were not facing immediate death. There was a hint of, of hope there that Adam picked up on. And God promises um, a coming savior who will defeat Satan, and he performs the first sacrifice of what would be many, many thousands of sacrifices. Um, the shedding of blood, God actually killed one of his creation to provide the humans with a covering for them um, to, to cover their, their shame from what they had sinned. And that was the first, the first sacrifice. And this was already pointing ahead to the time where Jesus' death and the shedding of his blood would cover the sins of all men. So God's a God of justice. Wrong must be punished, but he has provided a way through Jesus' death on the cross to take our punishment for us. So I want to end there on that note. Um, even though Satan is very real, very powerful, very busy today, his end is coming. And even though we have all fallen at one time or another to the temptations that God is more powerful, and I, like I said, I appreciate again the song that the, the battle has been won. We need to, to tap into that victory, um, allow God to fight our battles for us. And uh, he has provided a way that we can't escape Satan's grip. So thank you for your attention. Let's stand for prayer and then remain standing for the closing song. <clears throat>